So there's this uh, scene on planet Earth. Hands up if you've ever watched uh, the show. It used to be a DVD series. Now it's a streaming series. But hands up if you've ever watched any of the planet Earth. Yeah, if you have any kids or you are a kid or you love nature or, or you just want to worship God, you know, this is a great way. Or if you want to be soothed to sleep by the voice of Mr. David Attenborough, um, then this is a good option as well. But there's a scene on planet Earth and there's this marine iguana who's standing absolutely still on, on the sand on a beach. And, um, and it's standing still because its predator, which is a thing called a racer snake, is passing close by. And, and this lizard is motionless. It's not moving at all because he knows that the snake's eyesight is really bad. Okay, so he thinks, if I'm still, he won't see me or she won't see me. I don't know what the gender of the snake is. He can't really look that close. But, uh, you know, he, see, he sees this, this, the snake, this lizard sees the snake and, and just stands stock still. But then suddenly, without realizing, this snake rolls over the lizard or slithers over the lizard, uh, the tail of the iguana. And suddenly, the iguana knows that the jig is up and this lizard legs it as fast as it can. And actually watching it is rather amusing because its legs are kind of, it's, it looks like it's absolutely panicked and it's going as fast as it can. And it just looks like four legs are flailing in all sorts of directions, but it goes super fast and the snake suddenly sees the movement and it is after this lizard. Now the scene then changes and suddenly there's like maybe 10 of these racer snakes who are chasing this poor little iguana. And then there's this moment where the lizard gets caught. Okay, he's caught and these snakes are writhing around it and it's caught and you think there's no way that you can escape, right? But then somehow this lizard squeezes out of this kind of gross huddle of snakes and he's off again running across the sand and then there's all these, you know, scenes and you know, you see it from all these different camera angles. I don't know how they get all the camera angles, which they do, but it's amazing. And it's like, you know, and then you see this lizard leaping and there's one of the racer snakes just tries to catch its leg and it misses in slow motion. And then, it, and then eventually this iguana scrambles up, leaps over a little crevasse onto another rock and it is safe. Okay, and then the music eases down and we all breathe a sigh of relief. Like, that is as exciting movie making as any action movie with The Rock that I've seen. This is like awesome stuff. But there's this interesting fact about marine iguanas that they, that they can run as soon as they hatch. Okay, as soon as they come out of the little lizard egg, they have the capacity to run. And it makes sense, because if you were born into a world where racer snakes are uh, looking to kill you, then you would evolve the capacity to run as soon as you exited the womb, right? That's, that, it just makes sense. But wouldn't it be strange if that actually happened to humans? Wouldn't it be weird if as soon as the baby came out of the womb, that the baby was able to run and climb and jump and serve itself food and eat and all, all of this kind of thing. So instead of, you know, the mum walking out of the hospital with, with the newborn in a carrier, instead you have the newborn, you know, kind of holding onto the hand of the mum saying, come on, come on, I want to see Coco Melon. I've heard so much about it. Okay, it, it, it would just be, it's crazy. It's insane. 
And thankfully, that's not how God created us, right? We aren't marine iguanas. Because instead, what happens with humans is that we go through these stages of increasing independence, okay? So, uh, uh, so right at the start, you need mum for absolutely everything. There's nothing more helpless than a newborn. But then their eyesight improves and they learn to, to, you know, to roll over and crawl and, 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 and walk. And then they're weaned. Uh, and then they go to daycare or to preschool. And then there are the play dates. Uh, and then there's that moment where the parent leaves the kid at the kindergarten for the first time. Okay? And usually you know, the parents are more emotional than the kid. And, uh, and then they walk away from their child. And then after that, there's you know, school, and you go into elementary school, and there's school teachers and so on. And all through these like, years, what's happening is that the child is becoming more independent. Uh, but they still need someone to watch over them. And so for years, there's this kind of ever-changing ratio of independence with helplessness. And this is why... We baby-proof rooms, right? But you don't 25-year-old proof rooms. That's not a thing. Uh, Because we're not worried about our adult children walking into sharp edges in the same that we are worried about our just learning to crawl infants, you know, walking into sharp edges. And if our 25-year-old offspring does walk into a sharp edge, well, it's their fault, and they should learn from that lesson. And so the whole purpose, but, but the whole purpose of being watched over during our childhood is that we will one day leave childhood, right? So, so the limits and the rules that our parents place around us are there for a reason, okay? So that we will be safe and we will be protected. And they're also given for a season until we grow up. And so Paul kind of talking about something similar in the Bible, says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And in this morning scripture, which isn't 1 Corinthians, but is actually Galatians 3, Paul makes the point that the law was actually given for a reason and for a season. So, the Judaizers, which we've been hearing about over these past few weeks, um, you know, these folks who said that you have to jump through these religious hoops as well as trusting in the grace of Jesus, they assumed that the law that God gave Moses was for all times and for all things. But Moses says, no, the law isn't for all time and for all things. Instead, it's for a reason and it's for a season. Now, the book of Galatians has been this incredible insight into this space in our lives where where the work of God and the work of humans meet. And the question being asked throughout this letter is, where is this line, you know, between what what the Lord does and what we should do? And the Judaizers have been saying, um, sure, you know, God did his thing by sending Jesus, and that's awesome, and I'm really glad. But we also have to do our thing in order to be saved, which is to be circumcised or to follow the law. And, you know, the book of Galatians is Paul's response to this. 
to this line of thinking. So week one, we uh, learned about that, that we need to repent of our tendency to repent from our repentance, okay? Or we need to repent of our tendency to try to make God love us, and instead we need to turn back to simply trusting in him, and we called it landing a 540. Week two, we, we, we learned how Jesus lived the formula that leads to our right standing with Almighty God. And the correct answer is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so to find life in God, we need to uh, show Jesus' work and not ours. Week three, we looked at mobbing fear out of our airspace with faith and truth and justification and the grace and the life of Jesus Christ himself. And then last Saturday, not Sunday, because of course we didn't have church on Sunday, we had it on Saturday, we learned that it's faith from start right up until the finish, that what starts with faith ends in faith. It's all about the Lord and what work he has done in our lives, not us trying to earn his love. So we've been learning about how changing our behavior, changing how the way we live cannot make God love us. We can only receive God's love as a free gift. And, it's, and then it's as God moves in, through the Holy Spirit, that we have the power to change how we live. But the changing how we live comes after God has changed us. Um, And so Paul worded it like this. He said, it's grace and not obedience to the law that transforms us, that changes us. And so, of course, then, the question, I don't know if this is a question that you have, but it's a question which I have, is then, why did God give the law? Why did God give the law to his people through Moses? Is, is that a question that you've ever asked? It's a question which I've asked many times. If it's all not about the law, then why the law? So I'm glad I asked that question and, and maybe you. And so to answer that question, let's turn to verse 15 of chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, which says this. It says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So last week, if you remember, Paul used reason to explain um, how both our subjective faith, our personal faith, and the faith, the objective, global, worldwide faith, uh, starts with God's faithfulness. It's our faith in God's faithfulness that saves us. And, and, so, and so Paul used reason last week, and here he, he, he keeps on using reason. So Paul is actually building an argument. And so in verse 15, to help uh, make the case, Paul takes an example from everyday life. He says that if a covenant or a contract has been established between two groups of people here, then someone else Later, over here, can't suddenly walk along and say, actually, everything's changed. Okay, that's not how contracts, that's not how the covenant works. Uh, Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. And so, the covenant promise that God established with Abraham was not then with all of Abraham's, you know, sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. That's not how it worked, which is what the Judaizers thought, right? right? They thought that God's 
God's promise was transmitted from generation you know, to generation. Instead, what we read here is that God's promise was with a solo descendant, one seed, one individual. And so, so you know, Paul's really getting into it here. He's saying that, that your hope in Christ is based on whether this word seed is a singular or a plural, right? He's really getting into the grammar of it. And Paul says it's a singular seed, which means that uh, the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, 11, that all, that all the land that you will see, I will give to you and your offspring or seed forever. He's saying that this uh, is, 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 is referring to not a large group of people or seeds, but is fulfilled by a single person or a seed, which is who? Jesus Christ. There you go. Okay, and so then Paul carries on explaining. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Now, this 430 years, that's a very specific span of time. And what this uh, 430 years refers to is Exodus 12 verse 40, which is the moment when the Israelites left Egypt. And so we looked at this moment actually earlier on in the summer as we were preaching through the book of Exodus. But here's what Exodus 12 verse 40 says. It says, now the length of the time that the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. This is the same 430 years that we're looking at in Galatians 3 verse 17. At the end of this 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So why does Paul mention this very specific time period of 430 years? Well, I think it's because of this, that the time of 430 years of slavery in Egypt made a transition from the covenant of Moses, uh, sorry, from the covenant of Abraham to the covenant of Moses. You see, it was Abraham's grandson and great-grandson, Joseph and Jacob, who moved into Egypt under the protection of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And then 430 years later, uh, yeah, the, people of, the people of Israel leave Egypt and then, they, uh, and then they travel to Mount Sinai and then they make a new, new covenant or promise with Moses. Okay, And so Paul is saying that this later, later promise that God makes with Moses it does not wipe out the promise that God made with Abraham 430 years earlier in Genesis 13, which is why in verse 18, Paul says this, for if the inheritance depends on the law, this Moses thing, then it no longer depends on the promise, this thing with Abraham. For, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So our first point is that the law was actually given as an, as, as an add-on, as an extra to, to a covenant that already existed. God didn't make, make a promise to Abraham based on faith only 430 years, you know, to come to Moses and say, actually, scratch that. I've rethought it. Now it's actually based on works and you, um, you keeping my law. So the law was actually an add-on. Um, 
And that's my thought this morning is, is that the law was actually given for us a reason. There was a purpose to the law and it was given for a season. Uh, there was a time span for the law. We could also say this, that the law which God gave to Moses was specific and it was, and, and it was, it was temporary. It's a bit like um, if someone builds a house, right? Uh, sometimes what happens is that they live in a trailer there on the property, right? And they're looking at the house as it builds up and up and up, and they're living in the trailer, and they see this house, and it looks nice, and they're excited how it's moving along, but they're still living in the trailer. But then the house is finally finished, and then they go, actually, I kind of like living in a trailer. Why don't we just stay in the trailer and live here rather than moving into the house. It's a same sort of thing here is that the law is like the trailer. It was a temporary thing, but we were always supposed to move into the house. And so, you know, the trailer eventually outlives its usefulness and the law also outlives its usefulness. It was a specific and a temporary measure. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? This is the question, right? This is the question that we want answered. And then Paul answers his own question. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So you're starting to see Paul's logic here. Now, Paul will explain a bit more about this in a few verses, but all we need to know at this moment is that the law was actually handed to us as humans because of sin, because of the sin nature of humanity. So there's something in our nature that required the law, uh, at least for a season, at least until Jesus came. Uh, so let's m maybe put a pin in that thought and leave it there for now. Verse 19 says the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Okay, no idea what that means, a complete mystery. But, but when you start to look at what it means, uh, Paul is saying that the, that the Moses law was handed over to the people of Israel in, 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 in Exodus 20. First of all, he says it was handed over through angels. And if you look at Stephen, his last words on earth, he was the first ever martyr. Well, his very last words actually back this up because Stephen says this, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but has not obeyed it. Okay, and then after that, Paul talks. Um, so shifting from Stephen over to Paul, Paul then talks about how this law was entrusted to a mediator, right? And this mediator was Moses. So here we have the people who are sinful. You know, here is holy, holy, holy God. And there in the middle is Moses. And so Moses walks up Mount Sinai. You know, there's all the thunder and the cloud and the noise and the, and the, you know, and the lightning. And then Moses walks back down Mount Sinai with the covenant, with the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and so Moses is standing in the gap, okay? Here we have sinful humans, here we have holy God, and there in the middle is this mediator, Moses. And so, but what's interesting about this, um, yeah, the contract or the covenant with Moses or, uh, is that God has had his end of the contract to uphold, and the humans had their end of the contract to uphold. And if either reneged on their end of the contract, it was kind of over in a way, right? So, so each had their part, yeah, to play, which is why 
in Exodus 19, verse 8, um, yeah, the people of Israel say to God, they say, all this we will do. And so what they're saying to God in Exodus, because it's a contract that has both a human side and a God side, is that they will keep their side of the contract. However, and here's where it starts to get exciting, is that in the covenant that God created much earlier with Abraham, that there were no angels involved. And there was no mediator involved at all. And there was no mediator involved because there was only one person involved in the covenant. And so if I'm, you know, let's say I'm out shopping, right? And I'm just having a conversation with myself, should I buy that or not? Okay, I don't need another person to serve as a mediator between me and me, right? It's just me. I can work it out myself and I can choose and then I can do it. Well, it's the same thing here. Is that, uh, is that in Genesis 15 verse 9, when it comes to God's covenant with Abraham, Abraham says nothing. He doesn't say a word. He's, he's involved in the covenant, but he's not involved in the covenant. Uh, but you know why? Because he's asleep. Moses is asleep when the covenant with, sorry, Abraham is asleep when the covenant with Abraham is established. It's a really incredible moment in the Bible. You see what happens in this, you know, you know, in this wonderful account is that, uh, you know, the Lord, you know, he shows up and he says to Abraham, okay, you, you know, you need to get a bunch of animals and you need to cut them in half. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, there's half an animal on this side and half an animal on this side and half, you know, half a heifer, half a heifer, half of this, half of that, so on and so forth. And so what you have in between these two halves of the, you know, it's, it's a bit of a gruesome path. But what you have is, is, um, is that you have a path in between two sides of a killed animal. And so what that meant in those days, oh, I, you know, I don't want to show my hand there, but, uh, but what happened in those days is that if you were making a covenant with someone, is that you would both walk through the two halves of the killed animals, and what that meant is, uh, if I break my side of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me, right? Really gruesome. May I be cut in half and split in two if I break the covenant, right? Super serious. But, mo but, Abraham was asleep. Okay, so only God walks through the two sides of the slain animals. And so God is saying, I'm responsible for keeping my side of the bargain and for keeping your side of the bargain. And so Abraham's only job in that situation was to accept the covenant through faith. And so that's why it, it says here, you know, uh, Genesis 15, verse 17, uh, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, meaning God, with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is God fulfilling uh, both Abraham's side of the covenant and his. And so in short, in Exodus, uh, sorry, in Galatians 3, verse 20, Moses is saying that the Abrahamic um, covenant was a better one than the Moses covenant because there were no angels involved. You know, there was no angels needed and there was no mediator needed. You know, you know that what, what 
what the Lord said to Abraham is, I will do it all myself. Okay, so this is where we get back to the question that Paul asked in verse 19, which is, what's the purpose of the law? While still Paul holds back from actually answering it, instead he kind of amps things up even more by asking this. If we can go to the next slide, it's not uh, moving on. So, yeah, and then if we can do the next one. Great. So then, so then what Paul said, you know, he still not answered the question, but what he says is, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? So if salvation is through faith and, and has been since the time of Abraham, then when God gave the law 430 or whatever years later, is God then undoing the good work that he started with Abraham? And then Paul answers, absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come through the law. Okay, so, so the two things that we learn about the law here um, is that it's not opposed to God's promise, but neither can it bring life. Okay, so Paul still hasn't answered it yet, but what he's told us is, is that the law isn't opposed to God's promise, but neither can it bring life. It can't solve our deepest problem. Uh, so to help us understand it, the law is a bit like CPR, right? Uh, you know, the whole point of CPR is to keep a person alive or their heart beating uh, until they're able to get to the hospital and get the proper treatment that they need. So what would happen, you know, if, if, if you were walking down the street and you saw someone who was doing CPR on someone and you saw that they'd been working a while and they were looking tired and so you said, you know, uh, how long have you been doing this for? And they said... For seven years. I've been doing CPR on this person here on the street for seven years. And then you say, well, why don't you take them to the hospital where they can get long-term help and actually get well again? And then they say, but I can still feel a pulse, so I have to keep on going, right? That's, you know, the point of CPR is that one is that at a moment in time that, that CPR will no longer be needed because you've handed over, you know, to the hospital. And in the same way, the law it cannot bring life. It's the promise that brings life. Verse number 22, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so this is rather confusing. It says that scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. I, I don't I don't know what that means, but if you look at an earlier version of the New International Version, the 1984 version, it says this and says, it says, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So scripture hasn't locked us up as slaves. Instead, scripture or the law has shown us, has made us knowledgeable of where we're at is that we are slaves, that we are, we are in trouble. And, and actually, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, number 20, where he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, here it is, through the law, we become what? Conscious of our sin. Okay, so that's what that verse means. Let's move on. Galatians 3:23 says before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Here's where we start to figure out what the purpose of the law is. So we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would 
be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. That was God's plan all along. So the law, um, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So from verse 15 up to verse number 25, Paul has been building his argument to this climax, okay? That, that the law was handed to us for a reason, for a temporary measure, and it was handed to us for a season um, so, that, uh, so that the law would kind of serve as a guardian of humanity until Jesus came to set us free. Now, the Greek word here means kind of like a teacher or a tutor, Okay, so the law was kind of handed to us as a tutor, you know, as a teacher, as, um, as some sort of a protective measure to keep humanity from their worst impulses, right? Um, so, you know, if you want the baby to not get hurt, you don't lock the baby up in a little space with handcuffs on, okay? That's not a good way to parent. Instead, what you do is you put these little things on the sharp edges that make it less, it, less risky, you know? And so that's kind of what the law was, was, was for us as humans. Or you could say that, you know, the law was doing spiritual CPR on us until Jesus came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that Jesus has come, and now that he's fulfilled the law in absolute 100% awesomeness, we can now put our trust in him, and we can access his perfection and his life through faith. So the law is no longer needed. Uh, we, we now have access to you know, the best medical care for our spirits that this world has to offer, and we're on the road to recovery. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, which is incredible, right? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So many times, verse number 28 is actually used as this kind of low-level appeal to unity, right? Let's just all get on together because in Christ there is neither male or female or slave nor free or Jew or Gentile, right? It's, it's like this epic socialist utopia, right? Where, where all of our specialness is kind of lost in this morass. But, but the reality of what this verse means is even more amazing because what Paul is saying, and you, know, you have to track with me as I say this, is that this seed in verse 16 is Christ, right? He's the seed, right? The, the solo seed. And through Christ, we enter into that seed. And, uh, and, you know, which is why in verse number 27, it says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. His seed, you know, you know if you think of a nutshell, his seed is around you and he's the one who looks after you. And, and, uh, and so, you know, if you think of us being in this seed, um, where is it? Yeah, that, 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 that we've gained access into this nut shell, into this seed shell. And just like a seed shell, Christ is protecting us and we're growing in him. And through faith, we have access to all that Christ has. Wow. I feel like I need to take a breath, 
right? But, but this is so full and so exciting. And if you want to replay it later at half the speed, then feel free to do that. But I, I you know what? You know, actually, this isn't the whole of the passage that I wanted to look at this morning. I wanted to get onto chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, uh, because Paul continues to expand this incredible theme. But because it's so amazing and so full and so rich, I don't want to squash any more into this sermon. Uh, so we will look at chapter 4 and onwards next week. But here's where I end. Okay, these. These truths that we've been looking at this morning and that we will be looking at next week, in fact, that, that we've been looking at for the, through the past through week, few weeks, uh, that what they reveal to us is this incredible picture of a God whose level of concern and care and, and love for us um, is as hot as the surface of the sun. Many times we experience God's love more, more like a candle. You know, it's just, it's not really hot. It's not really light. It doesn't really do anything. It just maybe gives us a bit of a nice feeling every now and maybe it has a nice little smell, right? That's, that's, that's how we um, see his love for us. But his love is like the burning surface of the sun. And many times when we just view, you know, the Lord as this nice, you know, this little candle with not much heat and not much light, we often ask the question, does God really love me? Hands up if you've ever asked the question, does God love me? Okay? I see some of you there. Okay? But what we see from our passage this morning is that the answer is a resounding yes, 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 God loves you. Why? Because here we see a God who revealed himself to a pagan Man out in the middle of nowhere in this one-sided covenant of Genesis 15. And then we also see a God who after 430 years of slavery reveals himself to a young nation of former slaves through the two-sided covenant of the law because, they knew, because he knew that they needed a caretaker or a guardian or a tutor to teach them in the ways of God because he knew that if he left them alone to their own devices, yay, freedom, they would have wiped themselves out in, you know, you know, in one, one generation. So he, he gave them the law as a two-sided covenant, but God's heart was always with this one-sided covenant of Abraham. And he was waiting for that moment when Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, would show up on earth and he would blast out this wonderful covenant of grace and faith to all of, of humanity, to everyone who's willing to place their trust in him. And this includes you. You know, so we've, we've, we've witnessed a God who made this law as an add-on to, you know, the promise that he made with Abraham and he created this law for a reason and for a season. And what we've seen is a God who, who, who cared enough about the lives and the joy of the Galatians that he caused Paul to write this letter to them. And then we see a God who loves you enough and who cares enough about you and about your freedom in him that, that he looked after this letter. He kept it safe so that you could hear it this morning and you could really believe that God loves you. So the law, friends, was given for a reason, and the law 
was given for a season, but God's heart, God's truest heart, is, is, with, is with the faith, is with the faith of Abraham, this faith that's credited to us as righteousness. And so if you're in Christ, if you're in that nut, in that seed shell of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to faith, when we cover ourselves with Christ's clothes, when we trust in what he's done and not what we can do. And this is why Jesus, who was the singular spiritual seed of Abraham, could say to the Jews, who were the plural physical seed of Abraham, that he said this to them. He said, your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Why? Because he fulfilled, you know, the promise. He, he rejoiced in faith at the thought of seeing my day. He saw Jesus' day and he was glad. 